Daniel Peterson tells the the true story of a uh, a theologian at uh, University of Southern California at USC who was speaking at a theological conference, and the guy is really well known in in, in theological circles. And, he, and in between sessions, he, he recognized that his hair was just a little bit long, and so he slipped into a local barber shop uh, to get his hair cut in between sessions. There's a lady there, that young woman that was cutting his hair, and she says, you know, she's making conversations, what do you do? And he told her, and he, why he was in town and all that. And she said, well, can I, uh, take a, a, can I ask you a couple of questions about God? And he said, well, sure, that's kind of what I do. And so she said, here's the part I don't understand. Why it is that uh, God allows so much suffering in the world. Why he allows bad things to happen to good people. And inside his head, the theologian's going, oh, this one? You know, how many, how many millions of times have I answered this one? Or how, I mean, this is like the oldest question in the book, right? Uh, so he kind of takes a big deep breath and, and then, said, and then he, he, he starts talking to her about free will and the importance of free will and why it is that God won't interrupt free will and, let's, and the fact that there's evil in the world explains that's why there's a God and he gave her a really well-founded uh, answer to her question. And at the end of the whole experience, she steps back while she's cutting his hair and she goes... Uh, and she's actually got some tears in her eyes. She goes, I think that's total BS. I don't believe any of it. We just kind of finished cutting his hair and he pays and walks out. And he had a friend that had come with him that overheard the whole conversation. And he goes, what was that about? What, what happened? What just happened here? <laughs> and, and his friend says, well, a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, the answer was pretty dry and academic. Number two, you were pretty condescending. More than you were maybe aware. And he says, and number three, um, you never really asked her why she asked the question. Now, I think that's pretty profound. Because it had a huge effect on him. What was going on in her life that she would ask the question in the first place? What was there very personal about her experience that led her to seek answers from a guy that's just coming in to get his haircut? Now, I am aware constantly that, in a sense, this is in the church, and we've mentioned this before, this is a luxury. We have a chance to do something that every Monday morning that is fairly rare. And that is that we get a chance to move at our speed, at the depth that we want to, to, to dive into the scriptures. After a day of Sabbath meetings, we come back on Monday morning and say, give us more. And we're going to dig. And if we don't get very far, we'll just pick it up the next week. And so my sense is, with me as with you, you get we get a chance to look at gospel sections and scriptures and doctrines and prophets and experiences in a depth that we don't we just don't have the luxury to do in most gospel doctrine classes. 
That means that on a weekly basis, for those of you who have been here kind of month after month and for a number of you year after year, we get a depth of understanding and knowledge that is not necessarily always afforded to those around us. Okay. So, in the, in the heart of that then, we are really blessed. We are incredibly blessed. You have a depth of knowledge. Uh, and I mentioned before, sometimes I just kind of have to sit on my hands in gospel doctrine and just want to jump out and say too much. Yeah? The thing I love the most is that you apply it to our lives. And isn't that kind of the key? And that's kind of where I'm going. That with that... Was it the old Superman movie talking about with great power comes great responsibility? Oh, that's Spider-Man. Or Spider-Man? Yes, it was Spider-Man right now. Wrong superheroes, all right. After all. Um, but let me, let me alter that just a little bit. With great knowledge comes great responsibility. And we have great knowledge. We get great knowledge. And the question for me is, is, how do we apply it? How do we take what you've learned, and now we're somehow supposed to translate to, to kids and grandkids and primary classes and young women's and young men's and, and all that. How do we translate what we know? And the ability to take that, I think, there are oft times when I'm looking at a topic and I keep thinking, okay, I get it in my head. I, I now understand it, but how do you teach it? How do you teach it in a way that is not overly academic? But more importantly, how do you teach it in a way that lands in the heart so that you can walk out of here this afternoon and apply it? Well, that's, that's the genius. Some, some, uh, someone said that was Joseph Smith's genius, was his ability to take complex things and make it simple enough. That was C.S. Lewis's gift, to write, to take a complex issue and write it in such a beautiful, simple way that we go, oh, I get it, I relate it. So I think it's your challenge. Your challenge is how to take what we are learning and, sh and number one, share it. Make sure you share. But number two, how do you share? How do you translate it in a way that people around you are going to be able to understand the concepts you've got? Now, but because let me just say, haven't you had that experience, whether it's this class or a fireside or education week or somewhere where you get some great... Top, uh, great knowledge, and then you go and teach somebody about it. It was really cool, and then this and this and this, and they look at you like, "Wow, that sounds like that was really good." It's, it's like if you go on a great vacation and you see some great site, and then you come back and go, "It was just, it was just great," and they go, "That's nice." How do you share the vistas that you have in your head and your heart with other people? That's the harder part. Okay? So, yeah. It, it reminds me of that saying, um, just because they ask you what time it is doesn't mean they want to know how to build a clock. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fear that sometimes it's like, you guys have heard this story before about the guy in the, um, in the balloon that, that's floating along and he's kind of, he's trapped in the clouds He's not very high up, but he's in the clouds and has no idea where he is. He gets lost floating along in this balloon. And as he's floating along, he hears voices talking along behind him on the ground. And he, he kind of yells out, hey. The guy goes, oh, hey. And he goes, where are we? And the guy on the ground goes, 
You're in a balloon. <laughs> and, and the guy in the balloon turns to his friend and he goes, he's a CPA. <laughs> why, why would you say that? Well, the information he gave me was exactly right and totally useless. <laughs> Doesn't help me at all. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, sometimes the gospel insights that we get to things can kind of be a little bit useless if we're not able to translate it in sharing it with other people. Yeah. Uh, I think people learn best when they are seeking knowledge. Yeah. Rather than us giving them knowledge. And uh, through actions is how we can best translate it. I know where I work right now, people know, do not ask me to come to Sunday activities. Yeah. And they know that because I have said, I don't work on Sunday, and I don't do those kinds of things on Sunday. And at first it was, okay. And then there started to be questions. Well, why don't you? Yeah, what's the, and, what's the deal? And so because of their curiosity, it opened up gospel discussions because they wanted to know rather than me ramming it down their yeah. throat that, this is why I don't do it. Yeah, the, the old proverb is, is when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And sometimes we're, we're that teacher, but we, have to, we may have to hold off on what we know a little bit until somebody is ready to be taught. Okay? So there's your challenge. You, you're, you're, you're stuck with a terrible burden. <laughs> you know what you know, but sometimes you've got to wait until somebody wants to hear it. And then you have to be able to share it in a way that is clear enough and clean enough and simple enough that you don't overwhelm the, the question. Does that make sense? What a challenge that is. And I wish I could say to you exactly how to do that. But that's our challenge. Well, I think you have to make it your own. You can't tell someone about an experience because yeah. that's all it is. Let's make it your own and you have the words to tell what you learned, not how the experience was where you learned it. Yeah. Then I think it's... And isn't it interesting, too, that when... One of the keys, I think, is and how it affected us and how we were, how it felt to us and how it changed us. And that personal experience may cure on, uh, spur on some uh, curiosity about exactly what was there about that. Maybe they'll go study on their own. So, All right. Well, that said then, let's talk about wages and contention. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> Not that this would be applicable in a political year, but if it was... Yeah, all right. Let's start off, if we can. Let's turn to, uh, to uh, Alma 3. This was something that we weren't able to get to as we were finishing up the class last time. And I thought this would be a good little uh, uh, tidbit maybe to finish uh, our year on. Alma 3 is talking about... Uh, all the things going on with the Amalekites and, and the wars and the battles and all of that kind of thing. And then remember from time to time, then you've got Mormon who's reading through here and doing the abridging. And then he likes to throw in just a little bit of commentary from time to time. Just to get our, in, therefore what? It's the therefore what thing with, with Mormon. And so he's going to read us through all of that and then they fight and then there's a struggle and then he's going to say, now, 25, 
All these things were done. All these wars and contentions were commenced and ended in the fifth year of the reign of the judges. And in one year, thousands and tens of thousands of souls sent to the eternal world that they might reap their rewards according to their works. Verse 27. For every man receiveth wages of him whom he listeth to obey. This according to the words of the spirit of prophecy. Now, as it turns out, uh, Mormon is actually quoting somebody else here when he talks about every man receiveth wages of him he listeth to obey. So I went searching for that and, and, and I found it. It's in, and I've, I've linked it, so let me just click on it. It's in Mosiah 2. So we're actually going to be quoting who? King Benjamin. King Benjamin. Okay. And King Benjamin says, 31, I wanted you to remember to do what I've asked you to do, and you've kept my commandments, the commandments of my father, uh, keep the commandments of my son, the commandments of God, you'll, you'll be delivered. 32, but oh my people, beware lest there shall arise contentions among you, and ye list to obey the evil spirit. What he's going to do is he's going to tie the idea of contentions to which voice we're listening to. Because if we're listening to the, the evil voice, we're going to be listening to a voice of contention. Where did contention first enter into our eternal experience? Oh, yeah. The war in heaven. That was the first place of contention and rebellion and dispute. Now, while we're talking about this, I want you to put the back of your head. It, we're in a political year, and we've got a we've got our belief about who should be elected or not, what should happen or not, what would happen if this person or that person were elected or not. Now we're going to have a conversation with somebody, and the, and the question that's going to run through all of this is how do you have a difference of opinion and a discussion without it being a contention. Okay? Now, all my people, beware lest, you shall, lest there shall arise contention among you and you list to obey the evil spirit. Now, those that do that, he says, and I, I'm not exactly sure, verse 33, behold, there is a woe pronounced upon them. I'm not sure how the spirit does that. I'm going to pronounce a woe. Uh, you just received a woe. You go, woe. <laughs> I'm not sure how the Lord hands out woes. But there is a woe pronounced if you are contending. Okay? Now, uh, there's a woe pronounced upon him who listeth to obey that spirit. Which spirit is that? The spirit of contention. For if he listeth to obey that contention... And remaineth and dieth in his sins, the same drinketh damnation to his soul, for he receiveth for his wages an eternal punishment. Now, let me stop for a second. What's a wage? How do you get a wage? You get it's a payment for something you've done. Okay? So I did some things, I have earned some kind of wage 
coming back to me in return. Okay? So it's something I earned. Now, what happens if I've earned something and my employer isn't going to pay me what I was owed? Now I'm going to be, I walk, I'll be angry, I'm going to be upset. <laughs> Dang it, I earned this. I am entitled to this because I deserve this. I deserve what I get. I worked hard for this. So a wage is something that I receive in return for what I have done. Now, isn't it interesting? Notice what King Benjamin is going to do here. So, obviously, if you've received wages of an everlasting punishment, did you earn that? Yeah, you worked kind of hard for the eternal punishment. Congratulations, you got a woe, and you got a punishment. Good for you. You earned it. That's in your pay stub. You get the woes. Now, but he's going to balance it with for... Now, this is kind of important though. Having received his wages an everlasting punishment, having transgressed the law, you broke the law, therefore you're getting a wage. But what does he tell you in the last line specifically about that wage and that punishment? You broke the law what? Contrary to what you know, to your knowledge. So you're going to receive a wage of woe and a wage of punishment based on the commandments that you have broken based on your knowledge. The more you know, the bigger the woe. The more you know, the bigger the, the commandment, the greater the, the punishment. Whoa. <laughs> so I like the fact that you're just, you're just always tying all that together so that you can go, all right, uh, there are a lot of people that have transgressed laws, but maybe their wage isn't very big based on their knowledge of what the laws of God were. However, my experience is, even if you know nothing about God and you break the laws of God, is there a woe that is pronounced on somebody, even if they have no knowledge of God whatsoever, they're a complete atheist? What's the, what's the punishment? First of all, no knowledge and no joy. Gravity still works. Yeah, yes, let's say that louder. That's perfect. Gravity still works. Yeah, whether I deny the, the power of gravity, I think gravity is stupid. Gravity is for other people, but gravity still works for me regardless. So wickedness never was happiness. And it doesn't matter whether I think wickedness should be happiness, if I think that uh, I will be happier doing the wickedness, or if I have no knowledge of God whatsoever, but I do a wickedness. Is, does gravity still play a role? Great, great parallel. It does. So there is a woe, but it is even it's smaller based on our knowledge. And the more knowledge we have, the more capacity we have to hurt because we have more knowledge. Okay? All right. Now, look at what he does, though. And I, I just love how this works. He's going to go, okay, so if you're going to break the commandments, you get wages of woe and, and, you're, and, and that kind of punishment of pain after this life. Do we have, it, it technically, are there wages of righteousness? 
Listen closely. Because here's how he's going to put this. I say unto you, verse 34, that there have not been any among you except it shall be your little children who have not been taught concerning these things. But what knoweth, you know, you know that ye are eternally indebted. Those that have earned wages of woe are on one side. And, and for those of us who understand, is it, is it a wage of righteousness? I earn my righteousness. Pay, pay me my eternal life. I deserve this. No, how does he put it? What, how does he balance off the wages of woe? You are eternally indebted. Eternally indebted. I read something just this morning. I, I just love this. And it, and it is... Uh, do you know what the, uh, the uh, national anthem is in hell? Uh-oh. It has a national, national anthem. I did it my way. Oh. <laughs> nice one. I did it my way. That's not the national anthem in heaven, which is, I did it his way. <laughs> yeah. What about the times when those wages are inherited rather than earned? Inher- what, for example? They come from decisions other people made, mostly oh, yeah. like their parents. Yeah, sometimes those things have rolled down to us, and it's just like these eternal un- unfairnesses. And whether it's, a, whether it's a, a legacy of abuse or pain or alcoholism or even depression or anxiety and things like it's, that. It's not a wage. The wage comes into play with how you react to it. What, so your wage is in response to that reality, and how you wage, handle it. And often the greater the wage when you have had that influence on you. The, the greater endowment of pain, the greater endowment of injustice is often balanced off by we have a greater responsibility and a greater chance. And, a greater and, and potentially a greater joy. Yeah. Yeah, great point. Okay. All right. Now, that said, Dan, so I, I, want you, I want you to get the idea then that, that part of what we're talking about is that there is great joy then available to us but that the evil spirit that we listeth to obey leads us to contention. And contention, uh, the Savior himself is going to put it. So let me, let's go one last place. And that is 3 Nephi 11. We'll hop over 3 Nephi 11, 28. This is the Savior first appearing to the Nephites. 27, you're baptizing my name. Uh, 28, now, as according as I have commanded you thus, shall you baptize. And there shall be no what? Disputations, no contentions among you as there hitherto have been. Neither shall there be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine as there hitherto have been. Now, here comes, here comes our lesson. For verily I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me. Because you're listening to the other spirit, right? You're getting your wages over there. With me there's indebtedness, and indebtedness means I'm going to give you far more than you deserve. Wages are you get exactly what you deserve and 
It's the wages of contention. It's the wages of woe. He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. He stirreth up the hearts of men, contend with anger one to another. Anybody see the uh, the new uh, Civil War movie, The Captain America, when this weekend? Okay, yeah, okay. Here, here comes a spoiler alert for those of you who maybe want to watch it, okay? The bad guy in the movie decides that he doesn't like the Avengers. They did some bad things to his family, okay? Now, he figures out early on he can't beat these guys. They're all superheroes. You can't beat them. So how do you, how do you defeat the Avengers, all of these superheroes? They, yes. If I create the right contention, they will fight among themselves. They will destroy themselves from the inside. Is the premise of the movie. That's why it's called Civil War. Because he's got them. This guy did it in such a masterful way that they're fighting among each other rather than fighting aliens or fighting other superheroes. And it, did it work? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> It split them up pretty well. They're all fighting among them, and, and the movie actually kind of ends, and it doesn't necessarily resolve because, of course, there's another movie coming. <laughs> At least ten. At least ten more coming, right? <laughs> so we don't want to completely resolve it, but we don't end on a with a kumbaya, everybody's back together moment. They all recognize what they've lost, and what they lost was through the spirit of contention. Yeah. Why did, why did Joseph Smith have to leave Kirtland? It's contention. And it was the battle after, the, after the, the fall of the bank, and everybody thought he was a fallen prophet. And, and Kirtland that Joseph loved dearly, he had to sneak out in the middle of the night and meet his family down the road. They had to sneak out under the cover of darkness. Yeah. That reminds me, I hope I got the name right, that the people of DMS, when they went and there was a uh, within the group, yeah. contention over whether to destroy the Lamanites or, you know, That's true. They destroy each other. They do. Okay. All right. So here's my question: How do we, how the the within a marriage, within friends, part of what happens in a council, a, a ward council, in a presidency? Part of the strength of all of those is the ability to bring together different opinions about what needs to happen. Different ideas and suggestions. That's why we have ward councils. Or family councils. How do you have a difference of opinion within a council, within a family, within a marriage, within a lot of things, and be able to share those and come to a conclusion about things without it crossing over into contention. I've had this quote on my computer for years since Ben Nardi used it in his talk. 
Right. And natural abundance. And the, the, the thing that we have to remember is, um, as Alder Bednar said, no one can force offense upon us. We have to choose to take that offense. And by remembering to not choose to take offense to something somebody says, uh, sorry, <laughs> Okay, so let's let, let, let's look at that quote. Exactly right. Interestingly, the admonition to be therefore perfect is immediately preceded by counsel about how we should act in response to wrongdoing and offense. Clearly, the rigorous requirements that lead to the perfecting of the saints also include assignments that test and challenge us. You know, I. I, I always, I always hear uh, the kind of the high voice of uh, Jay Golden Kimball uh, in one act play. I didn't hear him personally, but I've heard it. You know. And he, he's speaking with high pitched voice, and he says, "I believe some leaders are sent to bless us, and some leaders are sent to try us." Sometimes that, sometimes that test is our leaders. If a person says or does something that we consider offensive, uh, our first obligation is to refuse to take offense. Ooh, wow. That's a tough one, especially if they're being really mean. Especially if they're... <laughs> my experience in my office, when are people most likely to take offense if somebody's attacking them? What's going to cause the greatest reaction in somebody? When, when are you most likely to take offense? When you feel guilty about the thing that they're accusing you of. Yeah, the closer it gets to what you fear, the more likely you are to get defensive. If, if, somebody, if somebody accuses me of being a drunk, I go, okay, fire away. You know, that's so stupid, but all right. Accuse me of being a drunk. Now, if they're going to hit me on some issues that I worry about in myself and I struggle about, they're going to accuse me of that. Whoa, you got my reaction. Okay? Let me add one more piece of that. Anybody know how a lie detector works? How does a lie detector work? Uh, it measures your pulse rate, your respiration. Okay, so we're going to hook up pulse rate, respiration, blood pressure. Autonomic responses. Okay, so if, if, you're, if you got all of that hooked up to you, and you're now going to tell a lie, what happens with the lie detector? Why? What is the lie detector mentioning, monitoring? It's responding to your own physical response. What is your physical response to telling a lie? It is the stress response. It is the, the, the autonomic response of breathing more, heart rate, blood pressure, brain activity. If we are responding to being, to telling a lie, why, why, do, why would that work? Because you can't control that. No. And because lying is and being non-truthful is stressful. It's not the normal way of being. And in order to defend a lie, 
we become stressed. And the and a lie detector simply measures a body responding to trying to protect a falsehood by becoming stressed. When we are less than honest, we are stressed. That is a natural law. When we are telling the truth and transparent and honest, our body is at rest. There's no conflict inside us. The conflict is our body fighting with the truth and having to prevent other people from knowing about it. And the lie detector simply just measures that battle. Do you think that that could possibly be wrong? Or anybody just to say there would be a lie detector test? Yeah, those that, have a, that are kind of nervous about any stuff like that, sometimes. And so, but what happens is that they'll actually determine a baseline. The reason why it works is if you're kind of an anxiety type person and I'm asking your name and you're being truthful, I get this baseline and it may be higher than somebody else's, but there it is. That's your, she's just normally a little anxious. She's got some white coat syndrome. There she is. Now, if you're going to try and say, and I'm the king of England and it goes up. You go, okay, this is higher than where she normally is. Therefore, she's trying to protect a falsehood. And all it's doing is measuring the stress of conflict inside your body. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So, our first obligation is to refuse to take offense and communicate privately, honestly, and directly with such individuals. Such an approach invites inspiration from the Holy Ghost and permits misconceptions to be clarified and true intent to be understood. So number one rule in, in how do we not be able to have a difference of opinion with somebody and not turn it into contention is don't be offended. Just slug them. <laughs> Just get it over with and then you're done. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> okay, I think anybody who's in teenagers has experienced this. I mean, I, I just had this last night with my 20-year-old son. Who, so as soon as I said something that hit a nerve, that was it. The night was gone. And he comes back a couple of hours later and says, I'm sorry, I'm never going to argue with you about cleaning the kitchen. <laughs> I just stood there and watched what it took to cook dinner. Yeah. And now that I know what it takes, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. His original response was because he was already defensive about the chores in the first place. I always love in my, in my appointments, uh, and it is so predictable, there's nothing like having a mom that brings in a 15-year-old kind of rebellious son. And I always love to bring them in together to start with. <laughs> Just awesome. <laughs> so, Mom, how, how's he doing? Well, he's getting angry sometimes. No, I don't. And then he's arguing a lot with his sister. It's not my fault. <laughs> and he's not getting his homework done. Well, not completely. And then he has a hard time. Then he stays up too late watching video games. No, I don't. <laughs> and and you can, it's, just, it's just predictable that Mom could say, and he loves cake. No, I don't. <laughs> My job is to take whatever you say and it's going to be opposite. Completely. There's air in this room. Well, it's not air. It's a mix of carbon dioxide and, you know, okay. So it's a mix of all of that. Well, not really. You know, my job is to be contrary. Okay? 
So number one, number one rule though in, in trying to have a conversation with somebody and be able to have a difference of opinion without making it turn into contention is that we don't take offense. Okay? What else have you found works? If you're going to have a conversation with somebody in a difference of opinion. You probably need to make sure you have some semblance of the spirit with you. Which will help them. You want to make sure that you have the spirit with you. Okay. Gotcha. What else? <laughs> Definitely. How, it doesn't take very long if you're having a difference of opinion, if you're going to go, yeah, you're such an idiot. <laughs> but I can't even believe you went there. That is so dumb. <laughs> you're right. That, that, that just kind of invites, that's, that, that'll get it going, won't it? Okay, what else? Oh, your pride. Oh, that pride thing. Isn't contention at the heart of isn't a pride at the heart of contention? I have to be right no matter what. Boy, I love that when I'm looking through uh, when I'm walking people through the divorce process. Woo! I gotta be right. I may ask for things and demand things, things I don't even want, but I'd rather be right than happy. Yeah. Yeah. Have the spirit with you as you communicated, and it's not accepted. Let the spirit bring peace to you, and let it go. I my theme songs are "Let It Go" and "Shake It Off." <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to do it your way. You just want to. <laughs> it's always very complimentary to me when someone has an opposing opinion, but they still are respectful to me. And we can have a conversation yeah, right. that explores both sides. So if you can come away feeling complimented by someone being willing to share with you, you're less likely to feel offended by them. Oh, I think it's completely true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You have to truly have an open mind and actually listen to what they're saying. Not just hear them, but listen to them. And you do whatever your ritual is to clear your mind ahead of time so that your mind is open. Whether it's taking a deep breath, saying a quick prayer, spending your CTR ring, whatever it is, <laughs> so that your, your mind is clear. The, the ability... One of the keys that I found in terms of being able to walk through differences of opinion is that if you're trying to talk to somebody who already has a closed mind and a closed heart, you're wasting your breath. And I'm amazed at how many people are trying to somehow, like I, I, I literally a few years ago in a grocery store, I heard some screaming and yelling in the next aisle. And I go over there, and there's like a three or four-year-old girl, and she's going, and mom is like next to her going, well, sweetheart, the reason why we're not able to do this is because we're, you know, we budgeted for our money, and we're not going to be able to buy that, and too much sugar would not be good for you, and so we're not going to get the candy that you really want. And the daughter's response was, That's why I, I, I'm constantly saying, if you find yourself in an angry, yelling argument, walk away. When the yelling starts, 
Nothing good is going to happen after that. Nothing good has ever happened because it's not a re it's not a receptive mind. It's only when things calm that you're able to then have a discussion. I'm sorry you're upset. We'll talk another time. It's like the missionaries are not supposed to argue. No. Because it takes the spirit away. Yeah, as a missionary, I, boy, I used to carry around what we called the Green Dragon, which was the new translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I would carry that in my backpack, and I almost like I, I should have just put it in a holster. <laughs> I've studied. I'm ready. Bring it, sister. Yeah, I got you. And it only took about once or twice of doing that or bashing with a, with a, a Baptist minister or Methodist minister that I did one night, and just battled and bashed away. I've told this story. Uh, the, the lady that we were teaching, and, the, and uh, she brought her, minister, her Methodist minister, because she really liked what we were saying, but she was a little concerned she was being duped. And so, we, it's, so we come in, and he's sitting there, she's sitting there, my companion and I are sitting here, and, and our Bibles and our scriptures are sitting on the table, and nobody's touching it. And we're being cordial, and I don't remember who reached for their gun first. <laughs> but one of us, and we went, boom, and man, we go for about the next two hours, and we're going back and forth. And and she kept trying to um, mention a point, and and the minister would go, I got this, I got this, I got this, I got this. And at the end of that, she actually drove us back to our apartment. Is nice. And then uh, the next week, she says she wanted to be baptized. And I said, I'm kind of, you know, in all honesty, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. I want to baptize you. But he kind of beat us up pretty good. He, his, his, he had better arguments than we did. You know, I was just a raw missionary. I didn't know what I was doing. And she said, it was, it was the way he treated me and the way that you treat me. She hadn't, she hadn't heard anything in the whole conversation. What she felt from us was much different from what she felt from him. Yeah. Space where she realized she felt something. So when you again, when you come to it with the spirit, let him direct you. Yeah. Even and the minute, yeah. and the minute it's going arguing, the minute it goes contention, it's like you know what? Nothing good is going to happen here. Let, let's talk about this another time. And the Lord time. will stop you when you. Yeah. When unless our pride, unless listen. our pride gets in, and dang it, we have to make sure this is a really good point. I got to make sure I get this th this thing done. Okay, yeah. You know, we used to have a saying on our refrigerator when my children were young, and it said, they will never remember a thing you tell them, but they will always remember Yeah, isn't that great? And, and we can have a difference of opinion, but if I'm treating you with respect and love, we can still walk away friends. I always think about this when I'm talking to my family who is Utah. University of Utah fans. <laughs> Just say. Yes. I said, well, you can be forgiven. Yeah. I remember one time on our mission, we were out tracking up in Montana, and this farmer was out in the yard, and we walked up to the bottom where we had a rebellion against the church. And we had, he'd already brought all the sections in the bed. You know, it looked 
companion he was in, I was just new out there, and he walked with a big tractor sitting there, a plowshare car. He just walked over to one of those plowshares and said, man, this is shiny. How did it look so shiny? He goes over there and slides down the plows and the ground eventually shines up the plowshare. We walked away. Everybody was calm, but you know, it was kind of easy. It was neat how he kind of diffused the... Sometimes you just have to find a way to diffuse that, that argument. Yeah. Okay, so let me finish with this then. Uh, and then we will have a closing prayer and bless the wonderful stuff that's in the other room and go enjoy it. Um, I notice in 3 Nephi 11, after this discussion, the Savior is saying, uh, contention's not of me, but it's of the devil. Behold, he says, 30, this is not my doctrine. To stir up the hearts of men to anger once against another. But this is my doctrine that such things should be done away. Now, 31. I will declare unto you my doctrine. Ooh, I would really like to know what his doctrine is. So he's going to say, here's the opposite. Contention is on one side, and here comes my doctrine, which is on the other side. Okay? He's going to say, this is my doctrine, and it is the doctrine of the Father which was given me, and I bear record of him, and he of me. 33. And whoso believeth in me, and is baptized, shall be saved. And they shall inherit the kingdom of God. And those who believe not in me, and is not baptized, shall be damned. That's it. And I say unto you, this is my doctrine. If we put in a nutshell what he just described, if you're going to be baptized and you're going to come unto him and be saved with him, what do we call that? It is the at-one-ment. We have become one with him. That is the atonement. To become at one with him. Now, why is... So if that's his doctrine, the opposite of the at-one-ment, the opposite of the atonement is contention. Because what does contention do? It, it pushes it apart. It separates you out. It, it's a dis, dis-one-ment, if you will. The, the effect of conflict, the effect of... Disputations is to create distance. Everything that the Savior is about is about bringing us home, bringing us closer, pulling us in to be with Him. That is at one moment. Everything about contention separates and pushes us farther away. So, at the end of this, then, let me just say, anything that we do then, as we roll forward... Anything that we do, whether it's uh, forgiveness or acts of kindness or whatever, that brings people closer together, probably has the spirit of atonement with it. Anything that drives people away is, is of another spirit. In fact, let me finish with one last thing. I didn't mean to do this. What if I can do it? Quick, this out. I posted something on Facebook this morning. Uh, <laughs> it's this. 
Okay, Elder Holland. When a battered, weary swimmer tries to valiantly get back to the shore after having fought strong winds and rough waves, which he should never have challenged in the first place, those of us who might have had better judgment, or perhaps just better luck, ought not to row out to his side, beat him with our oars, and shove his head back underwater. <laughs> That's not what boats were made for, but some of us do that to each other. There is the essence of taking a powerful doctrine and teaching it in a way that makes perfect sense. But that is a beautiful thing. When we talk about disputations, we're going to have, he's going to say, those who never should have challenged it in the first place, or maybe we've just simply had better fortune in our lives. When somebody is going to come along at that point, don't beat them over the head with the gospel or. Don't beat them over the head with I told you so's. Love them back, get them back in the boat, and get them dried off, and get them past that period in their life. I just think that is profound. Brothers and sisters, my, my testimony, I guess, for this semester and even for this year is the fact that the, the idea of the Book of Mormon and everything that we're studying is about the atonement. It's how we draw closer to Him. How do we make Him part of us? How do we get in a place where we learn from Him, we're taught by Him, but more importantly, we become more like Him as we get closer. We begin to emulate Him because we begin to think like Him, feel like Him, and love like Him, and serve like Him. Anything that divides us off so that we are at war with other people uh, is probably not of Him. And even if we have to disagree or be assertive or say no, we can still do it in a way to somebody that is being destructive or toxic to us, we can still do it in a way that is being kind but firm. And, ha- and the essence of that, I think, is a lifelong battle for how we do that. I- I'm-, I'm thankful for-, for you guys and for this opportunity that we have, and I look forward to uh, September, first week after Labor Day, where we can kind of pick up the sword, and we'll start with Alma 5. So you got all summer to prepare for Alma 5. <laughs> it's a big chapter. Really work it over. And, right. and, and we'll have a lot to talk about. And I, I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.